Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. As I'm recording this, Donald Trump's foreign policy and national security team is still taking shape. He has appointed Nikki Haley as his UN ambassador, and if you've not already done so, you should check out my previous episode about her background, but he has not picked a Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. So how are you best able to interpret and understand the implications of these selections to American foreign policy? Thankfully, there is some emerging political science that speaks to the role of advisors in shaping national security policy. And on the line with me to discuss this research is Professor Elizabeth Saunders of George Washington University. Saunders has conducted a number of studies that speak to the circumstances in which cabinet picks and top advisors can shape public opinion and decision-making on key foreign policy issues. We discuss her research and its implications for the Trump transition in this episode. And after you listen to this episode, you should have a fairly decent grounding in how to interpret the significance of these picks, no matter who they end up being. So this episode is a little bit of a poli-sci IR nerd fest. But it's also, I think, really accessible to people who are not grounded in these theories as well. So have a listen. Don't be dismayed or discouraged. I think even if you don't have a background in international relations or political science, you will gain a lot from Professor Saunders' explanation of how and why and the circumstances under which national security advisors matter in setting foreign policy. And it's not as straightforward as you may think. As always, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, check out our previous episodes, and if you're a regular listener, I implore you to make a recurring regular contribution to the podcast via our Patreon page, which you can, of course, access via the podcast homepage. And now, here is Professor Elizabeth Saunders of George Washington University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I think the place to start is just to note that political science has only, in the last sort of 10 years or so, gotten into the business of, in a, in a sort of renewed way, of looking at who holds leadership positions and whether that really matters for foreign policy decision-making and for international relations in general. Right, because they're like Um, structural issues in international relations that like the individual leader never matters, right, is is sort of the historic, traditional realist Exactly. So when I talk to like my family members about this, they're, they're always sort of shocked that you would actually have to write a whole book, as I did, arguing that leaders matter for these decisions because it just seems so intuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but for decades, 
the consensus in political science uh, and international relations really was that structural features of the international system, uh, or at the very least, democratic institutions or autocratic institutions, that was sort of as far as you could go in terms of saying that domestic politics or domestic factors would matter. But really, structural features of international politics, the bipolar Cold War struggle, um, unipolarity after the Cold War, these were kind of the defining features of of international politics. And if you knew sort of the basic setup there, you could you could understand a lot about the world in general. So the idea that leaders matter is now pretty well accepted in political science, but it's just important to sort of start from understanding that we've, we've only come to that acceptance in, in kind of the last five to 10 years. But now we have a wealth of work that is uh, that explores how leader background characteristics matter, uh, leaders' beliefs, um, the domestic political constraints of leaders themselves, how leaders got into office, how they exit office, all those sorts of factors have come under scrutiny and have been shown to really play a very big role in decision-making and foreign policy. So that's sort of the first place to start. Mm -hmm. We actually don't have a ton of research yet on the role of advisors. And so we often are drawing on sort of uh, older theories like um, groupthink or bureaucratic politics to make arguments. But there is a, a newer wave of research that's tried to sort of import a lot of the new work on leaders, looking at background characteristics and so forth, um, and how small groups interact to try to push those the, push those understandings further forward. Mm. And some of my more recent work kind of plays into that. Not so, to get like too nerdy, but is not like that Graham Allison study of the Cuban Missile Crisis, like the sort of the Bible of how small group and group think can affect presidential decision making? Yeah, so that's still very widely read and, and, and widely discussed. Uh, and, and a lot of people probably remember reading that in college and, um, it's still, it's still assigned in a lot of undergraduate courses and, and, and graduate courses. Uh, the, the basic bureaucratic politics model that's most famously distilled down to where you stand depends on where you sit. The idea that if you're the secretary of defense, you're going to go into a meeting with the president coming at it from the perspective of the, the Pentagon. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yet, if you actually drill down into that, those arguments, you find a couple of things. One, it turns out not to be that great of a predictor uh, in terms of, you know, often people bring their own beliefs and that those could be more important than uh, where exactly they're sitting. So Donald Rumsfeld was famously at odds with his own Pentagon. So it's not clear that him sitting in the Pentagon is necessarily what drove his uh, sort of thought processes into thought processes and decision-making. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is that those arguments don't actually have a lot of politics in them. And we know, and we're witnessing firsthand uh, as the transition unfolds, and uh, frankly, as most transitions unfold, you see this, but it's, it's to a much greater degree with this one, that executive branch politics are inherently political. Uh, within the executive branch, I mean. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's jockeying for position and Nobody has, there's not equal sort of standing with the president and so forth. And so the older arguments tend not to acknowledge the political dimension of executive branch uh, and cabinet level um, decision making. And there's also the question of what the signals coming out of the White House mean for uh, public opinion and for members of Congress. And so we know that foreign policy does not play a huge role in elections, in part because the public does not actually pay that much attention to day-to-day -day foreign policy. Um, they they ignore the details and they tend to look to elites for cues about what's happening. And they may take their cues from their from partisan leaders uh, in their in the party that they support, 
they'll also be looking to the signals coming out of the White House and, and Congress. And so the question then becomes, what influences those signals? And mm-hmm. what That's, the White House mm-hmm. says and whether the White House is sort of all unified and on board with the policy is a very strong indicator for a lot of people in Congress and for the public at large. When you start to see dissent and leaking in the White House, that's typically a sign for the media, for Congress, and ultimately for the public that it's time to pay attention. And so having a group around you that has sort of coherent views and um, can be managed and sort of keep a lid on dissent is, is a very important political matter for the president to think about. And so can you walk me through some of examples that, that you've studied that, that sort of speak to this, um, to this idea that, you know, unity matters and that individual cabinet members could be dissenting voices that might otherwise shape or, or disrupt public opinion in some important way? Um, Well, I think um, there are a few that come to mind. So in the Obama administration, the decision to surge troops into Afghanistan was one that um, uh, played out largely behind the scenes, although we have some good reporting on on that Bob Woodward book was was exactly I read I read I read that cover to cover at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and he had he has a pretty good account. Peter Baker also did some very good reporting on that. Um, And you have there a president who has had at the time very little experience on foreign policy, um, was certainly someone very interested in, in detail and um, learning uh, and taking decisions in a very deliberate way, but also had a cabinet and a set of military advisors who had unusually high profile. So he had Hillary Clinton as his secretary of state, um, who, of course, he had just vanquished in the primaries, and she's, she was then, as, as she is now, extremely well-known. Um, no question of, of people not knowing, you know, who she was, uh, as, as actually is often the case with uh, cabinet secretaries. You had David Petraeus, who at the time um, was uh, coming off of the s- successful surge in Iraq, and his popularity was extremely high. And you had Bob Gates, who was a mm-hmm. Republican holdover um, from the second uh, term of the George W. Bush administration. And you had those three who had unusually high, high profiles and were much more hawkish, uh, especially on Afghanistan, than was the president. And so you saw the president who, that debate, if you recall, was largely between that wing, which wanted a, a larger surge and a more sort of counter counterinsurgency, kind of troop-intensive, more aggressive approach on one side. And the other end of the spectrum was represented by Vice President Joe Biden, who wanted mm-hmm. a more restrained focus on just counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And um, Obama's sympathies, if you believe the Woodward and Baker accounts, were really with Biden, but he moved more in the direction of the the Clinton military, uh, Clinton-Gates, Petraeus direction. Um, I think in part because the feeling was you had to get the whole team on board and you had to make sure that those that wing was uh, was on board and that's what it took to get them on board. And the really interesting thing that Woodward describes in his book is, if you remember, he went... Uh, Obama flew up to um, West Point to... Yeah, to deliver the remarks, yep. To deliver the remarks. He took the entire team with him. And this apparently really freaked out the Secret Service because they did not like the idea of the whole National Security (laughs) Trust all flying up together um, in order to to make this appearance. But it was very important, and the the pictures show the whole team sitting in the front row listening in rapt attention as Obama delivers his uh, remarks. And those pictures were intended to be able to show unity, right? The White House wanted those pictures disseminated to show Petraeus is on board, Clinton is on board, Gates is on board, 
Um, he's being tough enough in Afghanistan. So the, the idea of sort of bargaining and accommodating, especially the advisors who are kind of farther away from the president's viewpoint, and making sure that they stay inside the tent is a really important political dynamic uh, about cabinet and uh, and other sort of non-cabinet but important decision makers that I think is sometimes underappreciated. It's, it seems one other example, uh, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, is the way in which Colin Powell was dispatched to sell the Iraq war to uh, yes. an American public that might have been skeptical. Yes, and this is a fascinating case. Um, so one of the things that one of the things that I think people forget about the appointment of Colin Powell. So George W. Bush uh, ran for office with very little foreign policy experience, and Condoleezza Rice was one of his early uh, hires uh, in, on the campaign trail, um, and, and was sort of seen as his tutor. And he made no bones about the fact that he had no foreign policy experience, but he said, "I have a very smart team around me. Don't worry." And when he was elected. The idea was Powell would provide some gravitas, and when the Powell, and this is drawn very much from James Mann's work on um, uh, Rise of the Vulcans, uh, right? Is that his book? Rise of the Vulcans, exactly. Yeah. Um, You're taking me back with all was, these books, by the way. Yeah, I know. We're revisiting all <laughs> revisiting, the yeah, the, the the good old <laughs> days, right? Huh. Greatest hits of foreign policy. Yeah. When Powell was announced, there was all of this rapturous talk about how he would be you know, a secretary of state with unprecedented power because the White House was so inexperienced on this. And 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 this actually really unnerved some of the people in the, the Bush team. And there was the, the defense secretary had not been announced yet. And there was some discussion as to who it should be. And Donald Rumsfeld was actually not not really favored by the Bush family for reasons going back to administrations of old. And um one reason they brought in Rumsfeld was actually to sort of keep Powell in check and make sure that he he wasn't too dominant in the administration. And of course, what happened was Powell was almost immediately marginalized from the decision making. And in fact, the way he was used was instead of influencing decision making uh, on a day to day basis, he was, as you say, trotted out in order to try to legitimize um, the decisions uh, in the Iraq war and to make the case publicly uh, again, partly because he was known to be skeptical of the war, and that was a much more credible signal, right? If you could convince the skeptic, that is a very important signal um, mm-hmm. that's more credible. And that's it's a lot like yeah. it's a lot like this, the the criticism you see in Congress, right? When a member of the president's of the other party, the, the the party that isn't the president's party, criticizes the president, you know, in Washington, that's called Tuesday, right? I mean, that <laughs> happens all yeah. the time, and. You know, it gets news coverage, but it's not surprising, right, when Republicans criticize a Democratic president or vice versa. What really makes news, what's juicy is and, and, and you know, makes a splash is when the president's own party criticizes mm-hmm. and, and, and it's so, very similar well, with the with mm-hmm. executive branch, right? If your own advisors are speaking out against you or if a skeptical advisor decides to support to support an initiative he's known to be skeptical for, which is what happened with Powell – that makes the news. And, and that's one reason mm-hmm. why they knew that sending Powell to the UN would work. And this is probably the the value uh, of someone like Nikki Haley being sent to the United Nations. And I should say we're speaking after the announcement of Nikki Haley has been made, but before any Secretary of State uh, announcement has been made. And, you know, Nikki Haley, uh, who's a subject of, of uh, a previous podcast episode, uh, you know, is, is not like a Trump loyalist, right? So if there's some controversial policy and she endorses it, it will probably help broaden the appeal of that policy. Yes, I, I think that's a really good point and one that's, again, underappreciated with, 
at the at the time we're speaking, there's still a lot of discussion about who's going to be Secretary of State, and one of the 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 most talked about um, in the last week or so has been Mitt Romney, who is a more extreme example than Haley, just because he has so much more name recognition from having run for president. But Haley fits the same sort of bill. She's this, these these are both from the sort of Never Trump camp. They were both. Um, to varying degrees, opponents of Trump in the primary season, Romney probably to a much larger degree just because he spoke out so forcefully. Um, but they represent the Republican establishment. And Haley's already been put in the cabinet. Romney might, I mean, it seems seems pretty unlikely at this point, but you never know. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of discussion. And if Romney was put into the, the cabinet, you know, on the at first blush, you think, okay, well, this is outreach. This is moderation. But you don't. What we don't know yet is exactly how much influence they'll have in decision making. They could be marginalized, just like Powell, and they also could be, at the same time, used to sort of be the public face of Trump's policies. And their their name recognition, their gravitas, their connection to the Republican establishment may sort of co-opt some of the criticism um, of of Trump policies and mute it in ways that. Um, could be beneficial to Trump, but not not good for debating the merits of his policies. And so I think it's important to recognize that every appointee comes with trade-offs, and um, we shouldn't look to a Romney or a Haley as necessarily, you know, a panacea in terms of uh, being a moderating force. First of all, they may not have that much influence in decision-making. Um, and second of all, they might be used to kind of to to be the public base and justify some of Trump's policies, whether or not they've had input in them. Um, so, uh, one final word on on sort of the the sort of political science of the roles of of advisors. I mean, what what else are you looking forward to to look into? To what else does your research suggest to you um, might might sort of become of of the Trump administration in terms of of the role of advisors and in foreign policy making? Um. Well, there are a couple things. Um, the first is, you know, it, I really will be interested to see, obviously, for a lot of reasons, who he picks for Secretary of State. Um, most of the candidates, including Romney and including Haley, uh, who's obviously been put at, at the UN, but this applies to her too, don't actually have that much foreign policy experience. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean substantive foreign policy experience. So Romney may look the part. He certainly is perfectly capable in, in public forums and can be quite, you know, he can he, you can imagine him in the diplomat's role. So he has public experience, negotiating experience, all of that. But I mean in terms of substantive knowledge of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. The only, the candidate that, I mean, there are two that have been named in a serious way. Um, one would be Petraeus, who obviously, you know, comes with his own liabilities um, in terms of his um, security issues and and just the, even leaving that aside, do you want an, a former general in that role again? Um, uh, raises some questions. Mm-hmm. The other being Bob Corker, the current Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman. They do have some substantive foreign policy experience. Why does that matter? Um, what we know from research on experienced elites is that a lot of substantive experience doesn't translate. So being good in one domain does not necessarily mean that you're going to be good in another. Um, lots of people have, have have talked about this at the presidential level in terms of whether being good at business, you know, translates into being good at, at, at governing. Um, the best uh, research on this goes back to work on chess, right? So so if if you if you get a chess master and you actually ask them to play a rule, play play a game where the rules are modified slightly, um, turns out they're not so good at the game anymore. 
so it's very hard to, to knowledge is what, what's often called domain specific, right? You're good in one area. You have substantive knowledge of one area. It doesn't readily translate. So I think that's an important, um, the, the, the actual substantive knowledge of the, the appointee will be, um, will be really important. Can, can I ask uh, one, one more question along these lines, which is the role of sort of the stage in one's career in which they enter a prominent foreign policy position? So if you look at, for example, the, the Obama administration's secretaries of state, you had Hillary Clinton as secretary of state who clearly had ambitions to run for president a- again. And you might argue that she... Um, was a little more risk averse in the role than say John Kerry, who is probably, you know, serving in his last time in, in, in public office yeah. and who's off, you know, running around the world trying to, you know, negotiate every conflict he can, you know, seven times a, uh, seven days a week. Um, like, is there any sort of research on how sort of stage and career affects one's decision making in these kinds of roles or what's your general take um, on it? So I think um, the short answer is no, although this is one area that I am working on um, oh. in my own research on advisors. And, and I think the way to think about this is in terms of incentives and um, specifically incentives to speak out, right? So we know from some, we know that advisors can be important cue givers. They can send signals. So if an advisor is willing to speak out and say, this is a really dumb policy, or resign in protest, that gets a lot of attention for the reasons I've talked about before, right? It's a very credible signal. If somebody from your own team, it's almost like whistleblowing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the problem is whistleblowing is very costly to one personally. Um, and if, if you are someone with future political ambitions, you have a lot of incentive to, to play on the team, right? Yeah. You also may want to, you, ha- you may have other reasons for wanting to do this. So Powell has said that one reason that he did not speak out uh, or resign in protest is that he felt he could be more influential staying in and trying to move policy, you know, at least get them to think about post-war planning and going to the UN and so forth in the case of Iraq. But there's no question that Hillary Clinton was inside uh, the Obama administration with her eye on running for office again. Now, that might be an upside, say, of a Mitt Romney. Um, it's not clear what Romney's future ambitions are, but, you know, it's hard to imagine him running again. And maybe if he went in with knowing that he, this was his sort of final major appointment um, in government, he might be willing to actually resign in protest. And his willingness to do that is really, would be very important because mm-hmm. it would lessen the chance that he would co-op, he would sort of be co- co-opting criticism or just being sort of a legitimizer and increase the odds that he could actually be a watchdog, right? And a, and a force for sort of letting the, letting Congress, the media, and ultimately the public know that something is really very wrong if something went wrong. And so, you could probably contrast that with like Nikki Haley, who is a rising political yeah, star, you exactly. know, who, who is, you know, a credible people talk about, you know, running for president in, in the 2020s. Exactly. And she's not going to, unless things are just so off the rails where she calculates that her political future depends on having not been associated with a bad policy, you know, she's, her incentives will probably be to not make too many waves, right? And to be seen as competent and um, not touch, dan- you know, dangerous, politically dangerous policies with a 10-foot pole. So um, this is the problem with appointing a rising star. Um, in some data I've collected, it turns out to be pretty rare. Um, appointments of a team of rivals kind of uh, type are pretty rare, um, and they don't often work out that well. Um, it's actually fairly remarkable how well the Clinton appointment in Obama's cabinet did work out. Uh, Colin Powell is uh, clearly the the 
um, the other extreme. Um, but I would say that there are some advantages to having somebody who doesn't have future political ambitions from the perspective of accountability, right? You mm-hmm. want the person to go in being able to be sort of an independent agent for accountability and not necessarily with their eye on a future job that colors the way they view or behave with respect to policies inside the administration. Um, so finally, I want to talk about your piece in political violence at, at a glance, the, the the sort of political science blog, the international relations blog, um, in which you take a look at some of, of Donald Trump's sort of very early moves that seem to flout uh, flout a di- diplomatic protocol in, in important ways. Uh, and I know you've done research into the role of diplomatic protocol in maintaining alliances and in, and in general in, in sort of foreign policy making. Could you, I guess, talk a little bit first about the ways in which Trump in, in his, uh, transitional period seems to be flouting that, um, protocol and why that protocol matters. Sure. So, um, the last couple of weeks we have seen really kind of amazing in the, in the literal sense, uh, behavior from the president elect, um, very much in contrast to the way previous transitions have been run. So foreign leaders couldn't get a hold of him, um, kind of got a hold of him in general by, by rule of who could reach him first. Um, he, he didn't speak, for example, in the case of the United Kingdom, uh, uh, obviously, um, a very close U.S. ally with the so-called special relationship. He didn't speak to the prime minister, Theresa May. Instead, he uh, had a visit from Nigel Farage of Brexit fame, um, not someone with any position in, in government at the moment, just the head of a party uh, in the U.K. And leaving aside the fact that he's rumored to have taken a lot of these calls and talked about his own business dealings, which is a which is a you know, a major concern, but just leaving that aside because all these other things would still matter even if he hadn't done that. What he's doing is, is in addition to sort of breaking the basic rules of, you know, talking to certain allies first, he's also, um, he didn't have input from the State Department on these calls. And so he was winging it a little bit. Now you could ask, why does any of this matter? Why does it matter what order he speaks to these people in? Why does it matter that he talked to Nigel Farage and not Theresa May? What he ran on a platform of changing the way Washington works, so maybe this is injecting a breath of fresh air, right? And certainly his supporters would probably, and his advisors would probably put it that way. But what um, what we argue in this piece that I, I wrote with James uh, Liebevich, my colleague at uh, George Washington University, is that this protocol is actually there for a reason. It doesn't just benefit diplomatic elites. This kind of predictability and routine is the basic infrastructure of U.S. diplomacy and U.S. foreign policy. So in our research, we actually looked at the overseas travel of the Secretary of State and the President, um, going back to uh, World War II, but especially the sort of modern jet age. And we found that what presidents and secretaries do is they travel overwhelmingly to the same kinds of countries, major trading partners, allies, big military spenders. So this image that we have of presidents and secretaries sort of flying to look their adversary in the eye, it's really kind of not quite right. In fact, what, what, what presidents and secretaries do is they go talk to their same diplomatic partners over and over again. It's routine. It's investing in relationships. And in times of crises, that's where you go. You go to London, Paris, Geneva, and so forth so, to talk mm-hmm. to your allies, not to go talk to your, look your adversaries in the eye. And you, you, all that work that you put in, the eating your spinach kind of diplomacy, as we call it, is what lets you handle these crises because your allies are there to help you when the crises hit. And this protocol is part of that. It's part of eating your spinach. And breaking it comes with costs. 
and it's the kind of diplomacy that offers benefits that are not always visible. We take them for granted, but we would miss them if they were gone. Um, and I think uh, that is the consequence of the, the way that Trump has handled some of this transition stuff. Um, and at some point, the chickens will come home to roost, I think. Okay. Um, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk about it. A very interesting moment for cabinet appointments and U.S. foreign policy. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Professor Saunders, who I should say has a great Twitter feed. Uh, you should definitely follow her. I will be retweeting her a lot during this period. I can assure you that. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, please do consider making a recurring contribution to this podcast via Patreon. And the rewards you can get for becoming a patron of the show are available at patreon.com slash global dispatches. All right. Thank you all. And we'll see you next time. Bye.